Amen. Well, good morning. You guys can have a seat. How are we today? Okay. All right, good. Well, if you're with us online or here for the first time, know that we're so glad you're with us today, you know, because today's a special day. And today we officially get into the part of 2 Corinthians that is my personal favorite part of the book. Uh, you know, we've been, we've been going through this book uh, chapter by chapter, and today uh, the part of our vision statement of wanting to see Jesus change lives derived directly out of our text today. And as we'll see from our passage, when we say we want to see Jesus change lives here at New City, uh, we could also say what we, what we also mean is we want to see lives transformed. We don't want to only see people uh, just accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior as some sort of uh, fire insurance uh, and then see nothing about their life change. No, a life that follows Jesus, as we'll see today, is a life that's been transformed by Jesus. But hear me loud and clear on this. Uh, Yes, absolutely, we want to see salvation. We are praying for it. We're begging God for it. It's essential. Uh, We're urgently and intentionally wanting to share Christ with people. Uh, you know, again, salvation is of utmost importance, but what we can't separate from salvation is transformation. Like, it's life change. And again, um, let, me, let me make sure we get this right. The order is important. We don't change our lives uh, and then find salvation. No, we do nothing except believe in the good news of Jesus in order to be saved. You know, God's word is very clear. We're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Uh, and so don't miss that, right? The order is important. And that what follows salvation, uh, the fruit and the result of salvation is transformation. Like it's a changed life. Uh, Again, life change, uh, it follows salvation. And all of this has led us to our series titled for 2 Corinthians called The Transformed Life. Which leads us to our main idea. And it's really our only point today, okay? I've got one point. And it's this, the Christian life is a life that is being transformed. The Christian life is a life that is being transformed. Uh, that la- this language of transformation comes directly out of the last verse that we'll see today in verse 18 of chapter 3. Paul says we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Uh, this is the incredible truth. And this is an incredible truth for those who are Christians. Uh, and we'll get into that today. But as soon as I say that, you know, I recognize that our passage Uh, today has a lot of Bible language from both the Old and the New Testament uh, that may be unfamiliar or it may sound strange to some of you. And y'all, I listen, I work really hard every week uh, to take what is complex in the Bible and make it simple enough uh, and easy enough for everyone to understand while also not diluting uh, the the great depths and riches of God's Word. And I told Kelly this week, uh, you know, babe, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this is a complicated passage. Like there's so much language that needs to be explained and understood, uh, but yet this passage is so rich and it's so good. Uh, and just so you're ready and can prepare yourself, um, we're going to have to labor a lot today. We're going di- to dive really deep today uh, because, you know, s- several years ago, you know, we had, the, uh, we had the opportunity to go to Italy while we were living overseas, just kind of like on Christmas. Uh, it was just a, it was a great little getaway, but, you know, we signed up while we were there to go on a tour of the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> you know, it's that famous art uh, that has the painting on the ceiling, you know, uh, beautiful piece of work, <laughs> masterpiece. You know, I really wanted to see it, but, uh, you know, I'm not a big art guy. And so because, you know, museums, they're not really my thing. Um, you know, I wanted to see the Sistine Chapel, and I wanted to get in and get out. I didn't want to have to go through this entire two-hour tour uh, through the museum. Um, and, you know, and then at the end, you know, at the end, you kind of stand up, and you look up, and you see the whole thing. 
Um, you know, it's an incredible work of art when you actually go through it. You know, but as we got onto the tour with our tour guide, you know, I had no clue what they were talking about half the time. I, I, just, I really didn't. I had no clue what they were saying. Um, but I would look at it and think, huh, that's kind of cool. You know, hey, I, I never knew that. Um, I was just fascinated by it. And I was actually the guy that was asking way too many questions and was way more into it than I thought I would be. Um, you know, but as we, uh, but because of the tour that we went through and learned everything along the way, by the time we got to the Sistine Chapel, it weighed, it, the, the art made way more sense. Like it was way more impressive. And so today, as we go through uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, this complicated text, I want you to think of me as your tour guide. Uh, and at the end, we're going to see how all this ties together of how God transforms our lives. Okay? And so if any point along the way you're lost, or confused, that's okay. Uh, but at the end, you'll be able to say, hey, I learned something today. I was confused some, uh, but man, I'm, I'm, if I'm following Jesus, God is transforming my life. Uh, God is changing me to be more like Jesus. So again, we've got a complicated text, but with a really simple application at the end. And so hang tight with me. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be a little bit more teaching heavy than than normal. Okay. Um, so just to give you a little teaser for today. Uh, of our tour. In chapter 3 alone, we'll see language like uh, letters written on our hearts, tablets of stone, a ministry of death, a letter that kills, the spirit that gives life, the new covenant. Uh, Paul comes in and talks about Moses and the Israelites and God's glory and hardened minds, a ministry of righteousness and a ministry of condemnation, uh, the veil of the old covenant, uh, those who have a veil over their face, uh, and those who don't have a veil. Uh, but this is God's word uh, that directs us, and so I'm going to work really hard to walk through this entire passage, explain as much as possible in our time, and on the back end, um, I hope we'll be amazed at the glorious reality that those who are in Christ Jesus, God is transforming our lives. Uh, but before we read this passage, I want to talk about this idea of just transformation. And I think most of us could agree, uh, we love to see stories of people's lives or life situations that have gone through a positive transformation. You know, we love to see uh, houses that are flipped or, or rooms uh, that are improved. You know, every time, um, you know, my wife Kelly, she's notorious for doing this in almost every house we've ever lived in. Uh, I can think of about 10 times in our marriage when I come home and a room has been completely transformed uh, to my surprise. Like, she just completely painted it. I had no clue. I would go away, she'd come back, and it was a completely different room. I'm like, hey, there you go. Uh, and every time she made it look great. How about this? Uh, we love watching kids grow and develop in sports or in academics. You know, we love to see adults go through a positive life transform transformation, like improving at work or in relationships or improving our home life or just transforming our health, maybe. You know, there are all sorts of things that we love to see transformed, but today we're going to see the one type of transformation that tops them all. Uh, we're going to see how Paul discusses a spiritual transformation that begins in our hearts and souls and bleeds, bleeds over into our normal everyday life. Like it affects every part of our life for the good. And so I want to make sure we get that today, you know, we're, we're going to see the difference between gospel-centered transformation and some sort of religious transformation. There's a difference. Like gospel-centered transformation, what we're praying for here at New City Church, it starts with our hearts and then it works outward into our lives, where religious transformation, what we reject, is merely an outward transformation of rules and regulations that causes some sort of begrudging duty. That often it starts on the outside and nothing truly changes on the inside. 
And so, and so listen, y'all, the, the Bible and true Christianity calls from freedom found in a changed heart, while every other religion requires some sort of very difficult duty. And y'all, yes, uh, we need Jesus to give us new hearts. We need heart, transplant, we need heart transplants, so to speak. We all need new hearts. And so yes, there's a, certainly a, a Christian, there's duty in the Christian life, but when we have a new heart, it's not a begrudging duty. It's like it's a delightful duty that flows out of this new heart that God gives us. So we don't need to, uh, we, we don't need to do more. We don't need to try harder. Uh, no, we need new desires. Like we need a new heart. As that said, we're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read it all at once. And then we're going to walk back through it a few verses at a time just so we make sure we really understand it. And on the back end, we'll have our one, our one simple application, Okay. This is what it says. Follow along with me, starting in verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are a letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? If there, was more, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what, was once, uh, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to, the, to an end came with glory, much more will it be what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like the not like Moses who would, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, read a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Before we go any further, I want to just stop and pray and just ask God to help us understand this passage as we get into it. Father, we need your help today. Would you uh, illumine our hearts? Would you uh, give us clarity of mind? Would you help us to understand uh, the depths and the riches uh, that are in this passage would, you, would we see how great uh, you are and how you are transforming our lives? And so, Father, would you help us today? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I said we would do, you know, I want to walk back through this passage and just kind of teach and explain a few verses at a time uh, just to see what the Bible says. Because there's so much going on here. Today's, uh, today's going to be a little bit different than normal, like I said. Uh, I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to have a bunch of points. It's just one point. And so I'm going to walk and talk and just kind of explain as I go, and then we'll come, like I said, at the end, and we're going to see how this ties to transformation, life change. Uh, so here, here, look again at, at Paul's first verse, in verse 1. It says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? 
Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Okay, so just as a quick refresher here, remember in this letter, 2 Corinthians, the letter that we're in, Paul was having to defend his ministry because he was often being criticized for being unimpressive. Uh, we know that the great Apostle Paul that we all talk about often here in church, wasn't, he actually wasn't really that great of a preacher. Uh, his appearance was nothing to boast about, uh, and nobody gave him any letters of recommendation, like they didn't recommend him. Like he was just a pretty normal, unimpressive, ordinary guy. He wasn't one of these super apostles uh, that he references later in this letter uh, with some sort of big personality and lofty speech that could probably draw in a big crowd. Um, you know, and at this point, uh, he doesn't really want to commend himself, but he knows he does need to defend himself. And so he gives a rhetorical question in verse 1, asking if they need a letter of uh, recommendation for proof of his legitimacy. And then Paul, in his typical form, answers his own question in verse 2. He says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And so Paul here basically answers his own question by saying, you don't need a letter of recommendation for me or from me. Your life is my letter of recommendation. Like you, the Corinthian church, you, the people, are my proof that I'm legit. That's basically what Paul's saying. Because remember, Paul planted this church uh, that he's writing, writing to, and he's taught them, he encouraged them, he loved them, he spent time with them. And then he further explains this idea in verse 3. But then while he kind of further explains this, he also begins to introduce a few concepts uh, in the process that we'll need to stop uh, on, on our tour through this chapter and just kind of explain, okay? So look at verse 3. Paul says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so Paul here is making the distinction that his letter of recommendation was not written with ink on tablets of stone, but with the Holy Spirit written on hearts. So, that, so that's what Paul said. And then, and then there... Uh, then this is where Paul begins to draw from Old Testament language. This is the point of the sermon uh, where we take a step into Bible and theology class uh, where you're going to need to put, put on your thinking caps for a second. And so try to pay attention as I try to explain this, okay? Because we're going to see Paul begin to make a distinction between Old Testament law, which is referred to as the Old Covenant, uh, where the Ten Commandments were given to Moses on tablets of stone, which is the language you see in the passage, and so when we see, as we did in verse 3, this phrase that he's using, a tablet of stone, we need to think of the Ten Commandments that God gave his people to obey. And so again, pay attention because we're going to need this for later because we'll see that these commandments, God's law, without a doubt, uh, displayed God's love. It, dis it displayed his glory and his holiness because it gave his people instructions for living, uh, which was and is a good thing. Now, I think we get this. Like we... Uh, having a set of rules for a game is for the good of everyone playing. You know, my, my son and my daughter, uh, my oldest two, they're playing baseball and softball. And this past week, I had to explain the purpose of an umpire, uh, telling them the umpire makes sure both teams follow the rules of the game. And, uh, and, and the umpire, they know the rules, and they help us keep the rules. And these rules, they're for the good of the game. So again, Paul here is comparing the ministry of Moses in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the language that we see here, to the ministry of Jesus in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And something we need to know and remember when you hear Old Covenant, to simplify this, just think God's rules to obey. Okay, when we hear New Covenant, 
we need to think Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is showing here in the text today. They're both important. And Paul is showing the difference between both. And so we're going to see this back and forth, comparing and contrasting with Moses' ministry and Jesus' ministry. And in the new covenant that includes Jesus, in this new promise given by God, he gave the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, as Paul said, was not written down on stone tablets, but at the time of salvation was put into the hearts of those who trust in Jesus, okay? And y'all, what I don't want you to miss in all of this language is this, okay? Uh, There is a glorious, incredible, and a remarkable reality that happens when we profess faith in Jesus Christ. And it's that we're empowered by God and the Holy Spirit. God comes into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and makes our hearts his home. That's what verse 3 shows us, okay? Right out of the text. Y'all, and we talk about this here at New City Church. Like if you profess faith in Jesus, the God of the universe comes and lives inside of you. This is, the glorious, uh, this is the glory of the new covenant, the glory of the new promise that comes with Jesus, which is why Paul says what he says next in verse 4. Paul says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Like, because God's Spirit now lives inside of those who profess faith in Jesus that we saw in verse 3, we have an incredible confidence that comes with Jesus. And so, uh, like, get this, okay? God's power that created the world It dwells and it lives inside of our hearts, of these broken and messy people uh, that we've seen on full display uh, in the first two chapters of 2 Corinthians. We're just kind of walking through the text. Because remember, this Corinthian church was messy. It was a messy church full of messy people in a very messy city. But yet Paul says, in spite of that, they could, uh, and so can we, have confidence in God. Because Paul knows he's a broken man. And they're a broken church full of broken people. But yet the power of the Holy Spirit, as we've seen, is living inside of them. And so because of that, they're confident. You know, as we see in the next two verses, verse 5 and 6, as we can kind of continue our tour through this, through this chapter, Paul is very aware of their brokenness and their insufficiency, as well as his own brokenness and insufficiency. Look what he says starting in verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to, sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, of the, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And so Paul knows he is not sufficient, and neither is this church sufficient to claim that anything that they've done was done in their own strength and power. And so Paul knows it was not because of his appearance, and it was not because of his great personality to draw in a crowd, uh, because let's just say uh, this man, Paul, uh, was not known to be a well-spoken pretty boy, okay? I mean, the reality is Paul likely had broken bones, um, bruises and scars. Uh, he was probably pretty frail because of his lack of food. Um, and, just, and just to make sure you're picking up what I'm putting down here, um, ladies, if you had to swipe left or right for Paul on Christian Mingle, you probably would have said no to him based off of his profile picture, okay? And so as I've said... His, his preaching, his oratory skills uh, were likely laughable to some. You know, Paul was called a babbler. Uh, he was untrained in speech. He wasn't lofty or eloquent, is what others have said about Paul. And this Corinthian church, as we've seen, uh, they were a big old mess. And to top it all off, if you remember Paul's backstory, you would know that Paul 
uh, before Paul was a Christian, he actually killed and persecuted Christians. That's what Paul did. And then by nothing by God's grace alone, uh, God showed up to Paul and turned Paul, a murderer, into a missionary. And because of this, Paul knows their sufficiency and their adequacy wasn't from themselves. It was from the God who was living inside of them. Paul's confidence was not in himself, but rather his confidence was in the God who made him, who saved him, and who lived inside of him. And because of the sufficiency of the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of those who profess faith, Paul says they're sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. And to say the same thing just a little bit more simply, uh, their sufficiency for ministry was not in their own strength and power and wisdom, but it was in God's strength and power and wisdom. That's it. That's it. You know, Oswald, Oswald Chambers, he said it well. Follow along with me on this quote. He said, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All throughout history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounce dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Okay? So how encouraging is that? To say it differently, Paul's credentials for ministry were his insufficiencies connected with God's strength. Our weakness combined with, combined with God's strength, it displays remarkable power. And so if you want to be used by God, what must we do? We must deny ourselves. We must deny any sufficiency we think we have and power we think we possess and say, hey, I've got nothing. The only thing I've got is God in his glory, which, let's be honest, that is everything. That is everything. And so as Christians, because of this, we don't walk around wallowing in self-pity and without confidence. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Christians should be the most confident people on the planet. And not because of anything about ourselves, but because of God's spirit and power that is inside of us. And the moment we start to have any confidence in our own spiritual ability is the moment we've forsaken our, our confidence in God. Again, this is not to say we shouldn't have any confidence, but we must remember our source of confidence. And it's from God and it's not from us, which let me say is a byproduct. Like This keeps us very humble. And Paul knew that the major difference between the old covenant promise in seeking to obey God's law and the new covenant promise was the power of the Holy Spirit. Like, that's the difference. And he said at the end of verse 6, the letter of the old covenant kills, the rules of God's law, it it kills our souls. uh, And it squanders our confidence because we can't uphold it. And neither could they. But the new covenant, with the Holy Spirit, it gives life. And then look again what he says next in verse 7. As he kind of continues to compare uh, this back and forth reality between the old and the new covenant, between the law and the Spirit. Look, at, look starting in verse 7 as we continue our tour. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what, was once, uh, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is performed have glory. 
Okay, and so uh, I want, what I want you to see here in these verses is that this comparing and contrasting shown here, it's all tied to glory. And what we just read, Paul said glory. He said it nine times. Like, Paul's trying to tell us something here, okay? He said it nine times because remember, the Old Testament law that God gave the Israelites on Mount Sinai, it was an incredible glory. And so again, at the end of verse 7, uh, Paul said when God gave the Ten Commandments, it says, uh, it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. <laughs> and so let me rephrase this for us. The Old Testament law, like the represented God, it was so good, it was so holy, that Moses' face that came in the presence of God, it shined. Like it, it caused others to not be able to look at his face. God's glory was so great that Moses' face, by just being in God's presence, became a reflection of the glory. The reflection of God's glory on Moses' face reflected God's glory and holiness so much that they could not look at Moses. And so Paul is painting a picture here showing how glorious this old covenant, right, this old promise was. And then he also said in verse 9 that this glorious ministry that Moses had was a ministry of condemnation, <laughs> which to us, that doesn't really sound so great, okay? Like, that doesn't sound glorious. But for them, at the time, it was great. Like, it was the only thing they had. And just to explain this a little bit, God expected perfect obedience, but yet his people, they really had no chance of keeping up with his perfect obedience you know, their effort, it was never good enough, which in turn, it caused condemnation. Like, things would not end well for them. But at the same time, their obedience to the law that they did maintain and keep, it was better than they were without it. Uh, which, sadly, this is how most people think of now when they think of Christianity. Maybe you, maybe you feel this way today, and you've fallen into this. Like there's a striving and there's a hope and a laboring of wanting to be good enough for God, but yet you just can't do it. You can't, main, you can't maintain perfection. And maybe you feel like there's this yoke of condemnation, that language that Paul uses. Like there's a heavy burden around your neck like a, like a, uh, that you may kind of feel. Maybe you want to, and maybe you want to glorify God. Maybe you want to honor God with your life, but yet there's this continuous cycle of repeated failure. So listen up, listen Listen, if you feel this way, you need to know that this is not Christianity. This is based on the Old Covenant. That's what, Paul, that's, what, that's what Paul has just told us. It was a ministry of condemnation, and it's gone. It has ended. Yet God's law is still good for us today, and the Old Testament absolutely is for our good. But we look at it through a new promise, through a new lens. We're no longer under this ministry of condemnation, but we're under a ministry of the righteousness that Paul speaks of. It's only found through Jesus that comes equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit. And this new promise, it does not end. Like, this is eternal. And so when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the burden and the condemnation and weight that we experience and feel is no longer on us, but it's on, it's on Jesus Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he came to take our condemnation and he gave us his righteousness. So let me just say this in a little bit more common language. Because Jesus died on the cross, when we believe in Jesus, he takes everything we've ever done wrong 
And Jesus takes it upon himself. And Jesus and God, they, they, they consider us completely clean. And then he gifts us, to us. Jesus gives us freely everything right that he did when Jesus walked this earth. Because of the cross, Jesus takes our sin. So listen up. And then he, metaphorically speaking, writes a letter of recommendation for us to God. And you know what's so great about this? Whenever Jesus writes a letter of recommendation to God for someone, there is a 100% acceptance rate. That's what God has done for us in the gospel. God sent Jesus to take our condemnation, to take everything wrong we've ever done, and wipe it completely clean. And then once we trust Jesus, Jesus then writes for us a letter of recommendation back to God, and every time God looks at that letter and says to us, come in, you're forgiven, you're mine, like you're mine forever. New City Church, this is such good news for those who trust in Jesus. We have a letter written by God, uh, written by Jesus to God for us on our behalf. And every time we mess up, God looks at us and says, the letter is still good. You're still mine. Like what an incredible hope. How good is that? Which is why Paul says what he says next. Look what he says in verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Our hope is that secures us and empowers us through the Holy Spirit, it emboldens us. And not in our strength and sufficiency, but it's in God's strength and sufficiency. So God takes our, our feeble, weak selves and he emboldens us with his strength. Again, as I've already said, we as Christians should be the most confident people on the planet. And again, this type of boldness and confidence can't lead to pride, but it requires incredible humility. And this is, this is what I mean by being both confident and humble at the same time. You know, imagine if there were a two-on-two basketball game, okay? Uh, and LeBron James was on my team. And we're playing two other decent basketball players. But uh, if LeBron James was on my team, uh, I would have so much confidence. Like, we would win. Like, that's just, it's guaranteed. But, it's, it, but it wouldn't be because of me, because the reality is, if they scored any points, it would have been because they scored them on me and not on LeBron James, but yet I would still be confident because as soon as we, get, we got the ball, I would just pass it to LeBron. Uh, he would score all the points and we would win. And so how silly it would be of me if after the game I was interviewed and I tried to take any ounce of credit. Like that's just silly. Uh, because the only thing I would have brought to the table uh, was a mediocre JV basketball player that sat the bench, okay? Uh, that, they, I gave them, the only thing I gave was an opportunity for the other team to score any points. But my confidence would have not been in me, it would have been in LeBron James. So yes, we as Christians, were bold. But it's not because of us, it's because of Jesus. And as Paul has been doing, he then contrasts this boldness to Moses' boldness in the Old Covenant. Okay, So I want you to try and pay close attention here uh, again, because this may be confusing with all the different languages being thrown around. Um, and just as a side note here, you know, if you're new with us and you're confused by any of this, uh, we would love, I would love to sit down with you personally and explain this with you uh, more if you can ask questions, if you try to make sense of this, because I know this can all seem confusing. Like, I, like I've been there myself. And so we want to help you along the way in this journey. But that said, let's continue on in our tour. 
Uh, remember in verse 12, Paul just said we're bold, and then in contrast, he immediately follows and says in verse 13 and 14, he says, not like Moses. We're bold, not like Moses. He would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. So let me try to explain this, okay? In the book of Exodus, in the, book, in the Old Testament, when God was speaking to Moses, Moses, after being with God, his face would shine, like we've said. Like if, if you go back and read it in, in Exodus, like his face would be glowing, kind of like a glow stick. And to cover up the shining on his face, Moses would put a veil over his face. And possibly like a veil you would see a bride wearing on her wedding day. So Moses put a veil over his face so God's people under the old covenant wouldn't see this reflection of God's holiness and possibly lead them to despair. Because remember, Moses' ministry, as Paul said, it was a ministry of condemnation. Because in Moses, uh, because them seeing Moses' face shine possibly reminded them of their impending death, which is what Paul says in verse 13, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Like this old covenant was ending. And with this, the Israelites, God people, who Moses was putting the veil up for, their minds were hardened. And again, in verse 14 and 15, but their minds were hardened. That's what it says. For to this day, when they, read, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And so Paul here was referring to when many of the Israelites during Paul's day rejected Jesus, which also includes many today that reject Jesus. Because as I said earlier, when the Old Testament, uh, when we read the Old Testament, when we read, it, when we read it through the lens of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, uh, and Jesus comes, Jesus comes shining through in the Old Testament. And when we read the Old Testament law, which is referred to, which is what he means when he refers to uh, whenever Moses is read, like the Old Testament law, whenever Moses is read, we don't read it through a lens and a veil of condemnation. No, we read it as Jesus is the hero. Jesus helps us to make sense of the Old Testament. Jesus is the hero of the Old Testament. We no longer have a veil. The veil has been lifted. And as he points out, the veil is not just in reading, but the veil is also over the hearts of those who do not trust in Jesus. As he says in verse 16, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So look at this. (laughs) When we turn to Jesus and understand the gospel and follow Jesus in faith, the veil of condemnation and guilt and hiding is removed. We no longer have to hide our face worried about what will come. We can live our life in freedom with Christ, knowing that we're not under condemnation, but rather empowered by God because we're living with Jesus' letter of recommendation, which shows us when he says this in verse 17, Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And so if you have placed faith in Jesus Christ, again, the spirit of God is living inside of you, not to shame you and to guilt you and to condemn you as the Old Testament law did for the Israelites, but the spirit of God through Jesus has granted us incredible freedom. And let me be very clear here. <laughs> that does not mean we have the freedom to sin. That's not what Paul means. It means that when we get knocked down, you have the freedom to get back up. It means that when you disobey and sin against God, it means you're not kept in chains as if you're under the condemnation of guilt. It rather means you're free. 
You're not locked up by your sin. You're set free from your sin. Because remember, God has given you a letter of recommendation that always and eternally claims you as forgiven and brought near to God. Jesus' letter of recommendation is your recommendation freed from condemnation and also a recommendation to be brought into God's house (laughs) and to sit and to dine at his table as his beloved children. Which then leads us to our grand finality in, grand finale in verse 18. <laughs> we've, made it, we've made it through the marching of the History Museum in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we've made it to the Sistine Chapel to see the best part of it all. Okay, Look what he says in verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And when, I, and when I say that, uh, maybe you're like me when I got to the Sistine Chapel and looked at it. Honestly, it looked like everything else in the museum I'd already seen. Just way bigger. <laughs> oh no, yeah, it was on a ceiling, so that was pretty impressive. And then they started to explain all the details and the intricacies of how uh, he did it and what it entailed. And the more you look at it and studied it, the more impressive it became. Like you realize, yes, this is a masterpiece. And so to finish out our time, I want to break down this last verse. For us to see of how God is transforming us. Because listen, Christian, this is such good news for you. If you are following Jesus and looking to Jesus, if we are beholding the glory of the Lord, if we are gazing upon Jesus Christ, we are being transformed and changed. If we have responded to Jesus in faith by believing in the gospel that Jesus has done everything necessary to save us, the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, has removed the veil, has illuminated our eyes and and minds and, and to see Jesus for who he is in all of his glory. And when we continually look to Jesus, when we continually behold God, when we are beholding the glory of God found in Jesus, we are being transformed. Christian, Take heart in that today, because God is transforming us. God is changing us. What is he changing us to? God is changing us, as Paul says, he's changing us and transforming us into the same image. That's what he says. So God is changing us into the same image we're beholding. So get this. When we behold Jesus, we're being changed to be like Jesus. What we behold, we become. What, we're constantly, what we constantly look to, we're being changed into. This is such good news for us. By continually looking to Jesus and beholding Jesus and his glory, Paul tells us we are becoming like Jesus. And so if you want to know if God is changing your life, the way to answer that question is to look and see what you're beholding. What is capturing your eye? Is Jesus capturing your eye? Like that's evidence that the Spirit is changing you because Paul said at the very end, for this, comes, for, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's what Paul says in verse 18. So as I told you, it would be, our, our application for today is so simple. Brothers and sisters, behold the glory of the Lord. Jesus is the glory of the Lord. Behold Jesus. Look to Jesus. How do we fight sin? We continually look to Jesus. How do we grow in holiness? We continually look to Jesus. New City Church, this is a very, very complex text. But as I said, we have a very simple application, and it's to look to Jesus. Are you down and out? 
Look to Jesus. Are you tired and weary? Look to Jesus. Are you confused or apathetic? Look to Jesus. Are you battling an ongoing sin? Look to Jesus. Are you lonely or sad or fearful? Look to Jesus. Do you want to be a Christian today and let God transform your life? It's simple. Look to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. It's that simple. Brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. Behold God's glory that is found in Jesus Christ. Do you see how different this is from every other religion? Every other religion is just like the old covenant. It's just like the ministry of condemnation that we've seen. Every other religion says you fight sin and grow in holiness by strict rules and regulations. In every other religion, you're left to look to yourself to be stronger and to do better, and yet it gives us no power. And the power of Jesus' ministry in the new covenant is that God comes into our lives. God comes into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives us a heart transplant, and God empowers us to be transformed with the simple task of looking to Jesus. Yes, rules are for our good. But do you know how we obey the rules? We have to change our desires to obey the rules by looking to Jesus, by beholding the glory of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, New City Church, what are you looking to? What are you beholding? Pray that you would look to Jesus who is transforming us to be more like Jesus. Let's pray. God, we desperately need you. We need to behold you. Father, would we be a people that continually, day in and day out, look to Jesus? That we wouldn't look to everything else in this world, but we would be a people that repeatedly look to Christ. Father, we need you. Would you help us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.